This is the Hasidic Story Project with Barack Holman, podcasting from Jerusalem, Israel. This podcast is sponsored by listeners just like you. To become a supporter of this podcast, please go to HasidicStory.com. H-A-S-I-D-I-C Story.com. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll Many years ago, there was a Jew who rented a tavern from a graf, a duke, landowner, who owned all the property where this Jew lived. And unfortunately, one of the reasons that the taverns were rented out to the Jews was because it wasn't such a great business. The Goyim would come, insist on drinking, and since it was a Jew, and in those days Jews didn't have any rights, they simply wouldn't pay. But the landlord would insist that the tavern be open. So the Jew had to go buy more vodka and whiskey and keep the tavern open, even though people weren't paying him. And so two years passed, and this Jew ended up two years of rent in debt. And the landlord wasn't very happy. He didn't like Jews to start with, and he certainly didn't like people who owed him money. And he threatened this Jew that if he didn't pay the full two years by the end of the month, which was the beginning of the third year, then he would throw his wife and his children into a dungeon deep underground, lock the door, and never come back again. This is what happened, unfortunately, to many families back in those days. And so this Jew was a little panicked. He was pacing around the room, saying to his wife, Where am I going to get two years of rent? We don't have enough money to make ends meet. I don't have any way of getting any money. Business is still bad. Nobody's going to lend me that kind of money. And as each day passed, he became more and more stressed. And he could also see the fear in the eyes of his wife and children. And no matter what he did, he couldn't come up with another idea. He didn't know what to do. And then his wife said, You know, my dear husband, there's a rabbi who people say he can do miracles. And he doesn't live so far from here. Why don't you go to him and ask him for advice? And the husband, who was a little bit of a scholar, was a very reasonable and logical person. He said, listen, my dear wife, maybe fools and idiots go to that rabbi, if he even is a rabbi. But I'm an educated person. There's no way that I'm going to go to that Baal Shem Tov rabbi. I'm not a fool like them. Another few days passed, and he was losing sleep at night. And his wife kept saying, go to the Baal Shem Tov. What do you have to lose? So you might make a fool of yourself. You don't have to follow his advice. At least go and ask it. Maybe he'll have something clever to say. Maybe he'll think of some way of solving our financial problems that you never thought of. But he refused to go because he said, that's not for somebody like me. I'm a Torah scholar. I fear Hashem. I'm not going to some Bubba Misa, miracle worker, blah, 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 rabbi. No way, not doing it. But as the days got closer to having to pay that debt, the tavern owner realized he might not have any other choice but to go to the miracle worker rabbi, the Baal Shem Tov. And his wife packed him a nice lunch and some other food to carry him along the way. She said, don't worry about it, my husband. You're going to be fine. We're going to be fine, Bezrat Hashem. So you'll go to the Baal Shem Tov and just see what he has to say. Just listen to him. And so the Jew goes on his way. And when he reaches Mezhibuz, he sees there's signs to the Baal Shem Tov. And he goes to the Gabbai, to the secretary. And he says, I'm here to see the miracle working rabbi. And the secretary says, have a seat. You'll be called when it's your turn. And he's sitting there watching people go into the Baal Shem Tov's room. Some come out happy. Some come out crying. Some come out looking like they're shocked. 
And finally, it's his turn. He's called into the room. And he looks at the Baal Shem Tov. And he thinks to himself, I don't know if this guy is for real. It doesn't look so special to me. And the Baal Shem Tov says to him, please sit down. Tell me what's your story. So he says, you know, I rent a tavern. I owe two years of rent. The third year is coming and I still don't have any more money. And I don't know what to do. I'm at my wit's end. I can't figure anything out. And the truth is, I'm not a believer in you. I don't believe in miracles and miracle workers. But I'm so desperate, I'll even come to somebody like you. So the Baal Shem Tov says to him, First of all, you should know that anything I say to you is not coming from me, but it's coming from a Kadosh Baruch Hu. And Hashem has enabled me to have a holy vision in this world, be able to see things. I don't do miracles. Only Hashem can do miracles. So the tavern owner says, Okay, very nice. That's a nice lecture. What advice do you have for me? The Baal Shem Tov says, Sunday morning, I want you to go to town, to the marketplace. And when you see a non-Jew peasant come and approach you and offers to sell you something, buy it immediately. Doesn't matter what it is, how it looks or how it smells, doesn't matter how much it's worth, doesn't matter how much money he asks from you, just buy it and then come here and I'll tell you what to do with it. So he says, okay, thank you, Rabbi. And he goes back home. And the first thing his wife says, no, how was it? What did the Baal Shem Tov say? And he said, the Baal Shem Tov said that I'm an idiot. And I like listening to idiots. And this was the stupidest thing I ever heard in my whole life. She says, really? That's what he said to you? I said, no. He told me to go to the market on Sunday when the market is closed and to buy the something from some peasant for whatever price he asks. And I have no idea and I don't understand what to do. So Sunday morning came and his wife wakes him up. and She says, good luck, my husband. Take our last gold coin and go to the marketplace and buy whatever is coming your way. And reluctantly... He takes the last coin that they have and he goes to the marketplace and it's completely deserted. Because of course it's closed and nobody's there. And he's standing there thinking, what a fool I am. This whole thing is ridiculous. And then in the distance he sees a farmer dressed in sheepskins, not so clean, clearly not Jewish. And the farmer approaches the Jewish tavern owner. He says, hey, you want to buy something? And the Jew says, okay, what do you have to sell? So he takes a sheepskin off of his shoulder. He says, this, it's a sheepskin. He says, I know it's a sheepskin. Why are you selling it to me? He says, because it's very special. Take a look. And the tavern owner looks at the sheepskin. Not only does it not look special, it doesn't smell very good. It looks old and ragged. Why would anybody want this thing? But he says, okay, how much is it? And the farmer says, one gold coin. And the tavern owner reaches into his pocket, pulls out one gold coin. The last of all of his money, hands it to the farmer who flips it in the air, puts it in his pocket, pats the Jew on the back and says, you got yourself a great deal. Thank you, Jew. Goodbye. And the farmer walks away. And then the tavern owner, he's looking at this disgusting old sheepskin. And he says, what did I do? I just gave away my last gold coin for this. He said, shouting for the farmer, hey, get back here. I want my money back. But no matter what way he looked, he couldn't find the farmer. The farmer had disappeared. Just like he had showed up, he disappeared. When he got back home, his wife said, My husband, how did it go in the marketplace? He looked at her. He said, It's your fault. You did this to me. She said, What do you mean? What happened? He shows her the sheepskin. And he says, Look at this disgusting, ratty sheepskin that I bought for a gold coin. The last money that we had. The wife was calm. She took the sheepskin. She looked at it this way and that way. And he said to her, It stinks too. She said, don't worry, my husband, I'll wash it. I'll make it smell really nice. And she did. She scrubbed it and she cleaned it and dried it. 
And then she gave it back to her husband. And she said, now take this back to the Baal Shem Tov and ask him, what are we supposed to do with it? And he said, oh, I don't want to go back to the Baal Shem Tov. This is crazy. This is crazy, my wife. She said, just take the sheepskin and go to the Baal Shem Tov. So he knew he only had a couple of days left to pay off his rent. He didn't have any money. He didn't have any options. His wife was kind of making him crazy. So he said, fine. Takes the sheepskin. Goes back to the Baal Shem Tov. When he walks in the Rebbe's room, the Baal Shem Tov sees the sheepskin. He says, you did very well, my friend. You listened to me. Now here's what you're going to do next. Your landlord, the Graf, is having a birthday celebration in a few days. He's going to have a huge party and invite all of the wealthy landowners from all around. And each of them is going to bring a very expensive birthday present for the Graf. And you too will bring a present for the Graf. A sheepskin that you purchased in the marketplace. This tavern owner was in shock. And he says, Rabbi, please, you mean to tell me that this disgusting thing that smelled so bad that my wife had to wash it, I'm going to take to a nobleman when all of his friends are giving gifts and presented to him. And the Baal Shem Tov says, exactly. I knew you were smart. Now go and be successful in your mission. So the first thing he did when he got back home was tell his wife, you and the Baal Shem Tov are out to kill me. She said, calm down, my husband. What did the Baal Shem Tov say? He said, he wants to kill me. And you also want to kill me. She said, don't be ridiculous. What did he say? So he said, I'll tell you what he said. The Baal Shem Tov wants me to go to the Graf's birthday party when all of his fancy wealthy friends are there. All of his friends bringing him fancy wines and alcohol, cigars, rare foods, valuable gemstones, pieces of artwork. And I'm going to show up with this old, disgusting sheepskin that smelled so bad you had to wash it. You know what's going to happen? He's going to throw me in the dungeon and leave me there forever. And who knows what will happen to the rest of the Jewish community? It'd be so insulted. Who knows what will happen? But his wife, she had a Muna. She had a Muna. She had faith in Hashem and faith in Sadiqim. And she said, my husband, if you could have figured this out on your own, we wouldn't need the help of the Baal Shem Tov. But you couldn't figure it out. And I couldn't figure it out. So you're going to take that sheepskin to the landlord. And you're going to present it to him as a birthday present. Just like the Baal Shem Tov said. And you will trust in Hashem that everything will work out the way it's supposed to. So she dresses her husband, gives him these fine clothes. Whatever they had, she gives him a little box with some pastries that she made for the journey. And she said, go to the graf and give him the sheepskin. And so, with a sinking feeling in his stomach, worried that this might be the end of him, he goes to the mansion of the graf. And he's standing there outside of the door. His heart is beating. He's starting to sweat. He's feeling sick. And as he comes closer, he sees all of the fancy carriages of all the wealthy people there. They're there with their wives. They're there with their servants. This was not a place for a Jew like him. And he gently works his way up the steps to the grand door of the palace where the Graf lived. And he's too scared to knock on the door. A few of the guests go in and he's just standing there outside the door. And eventually, one of the servants understands what's going on. He says, Jew, come over here. And this poor Jew, he looks at the servant and he says, What do you mean? He said, You've been standing here for a while. Do you have a present for the Graf? He says, a present? I, I don't know. The servant says, what's that you have in your hand there? A sheepskin? He starts laughing. A sheepskin? <laughs> You're going to present a sheepskin to the graph? This is going to be good. We're going to have a skewered Jew? This is some party, grabs the tavern owner. He says, come, my friend. 
Let's go present your special gift to the Graf on his birthday. And he walks him into the party. Everybody's looking at this Jew. The servant takes the disgusting sheepskin, hands it to the Graf, and the Graf says, what's this? He says, you know this Jew over here? He said, yeah, he owes me two years of rent. Did he bring it to me? He said, no, he brought you this sheepskin. And everyone looks at the sheepskin. It was lucky his wife washed it because it still smelled bad. And the Graf says, take this Jew to the dungeon. I don't have time to deal with him. Why should I let him ruin my party? And they take him down into the dungeon, lock the door, and disappear. And he knew all along this was what was going to happen. He said, my wife wants to kill me, the Baal Shem Tev wants to kill me, and here I am, stuck in the dungeon, underground, and no one will ever come back to see me again, and I'm a dead man. And a couple hours pass, and the Graf is drinking, and dancing, and eating. And he said to himself, why would that Jew bring me an old, disgusting sheepskin? You know, it's true that Jews are cheap, and disloyal, and greedy, but one thing Jews are not. They are not stupid. Why would this Jew risk his life to bring me this worthless sheepskin? There must be something more to it. And so he took the sheepskin into a private room and locked the door. And he's looking at it from different angles. And he takes it and he rolls it out on his table. And he notices that on one side, there's the shape of a letter. And then he sees there's another letter. And then he turned it in such a way that he could see all of the letters, and it shocked him to see that it spelled his name, his father's name, his family name, and the day, month, and year when he was born. The Graf was looking at this, and he said, This can't be done naturally. Nobody could do something like this. This is a miracle. This sheepskin is a miracle. He runs out of the room, goes back into the party, and tells everybody, Take a look at this sheepskin. And he holds it up so everyone can see the letters. And they see it, and they start applauding. He asked the crowd, have any of you ever seen anything like this before? They all said, no! He said, do you think anyone could possibly make something like this? They all said, no. He said, it's unnatural, right? It's a miracle. It's a wonder of nature. So one of the guests said, why don't you ask the Jew where he got it from? And the Graf says, you're right. That's exactly what I should have done right away. He claps his hands, calls from one of the servants, says, come over here, go bring the Jew out of the dungeon, I want to ask him a question. And so as soon as they open the door, the Jew falls on the feet of the servant and he says, it's not my fault, it's my wife's fault. And the servant says, what are you talking about? He said, she told me to go to the Baal Shem Tov, it's his fault. The servant says, get up, you foolish Jew. We're going to the Graf, you'll explain it to him. And as soon as he gets to the Graf, he falls to his feet and says, it's not my fault. I went to this crazy rabbi. My wife told me to do it. It's not my fault. And the Graf says, relax, relax, my good friend. And the Jew says, my good friend? What do you mean, my good friend? He said, this rabbi of yours, whatever his name is, he's indeed a holy man. And your wife must be a very special woman to have faith in such a special man like him. So the tavern owner, he stands up and he says, what do you mean? And the Graf says, you don't know what gift you brought to me? He said, no, I really have no idea. I just followed the instructions of the rabbi. So the Graf said to him, take a look. And he unrolls the sheepskin and the Jew sees with his own eyes, the names and the dates and something completely unnatural, something that could never be done by a human being. 
And the Graf says, this is the greatest gift I ever received. You know, all these fools over here, sure, they have lots of money. But we all drank good wine and we all ate good meat. And how many gemstones and gold can a person have? But a gift like this, no one could ever give me a gift like this. But you did. And so I want to give you a gift. I'm going to wipe out all that debt. You'll have to pay me next year. But the last two years, don't worry about them. And also, I have so much gold and silver. I want to give you some. And he has one of the servants bring a bunch of gold and silver to this Jew. And some of the other wealthy guests were so impressed by this beautiful gift. They also wanted to give gemstones and gold and silver and all kinds of gifts to the tavern owner. And he left a wealthy man. His debt had been wiped out and he had more money than he could ever imagine. He came back home and the first thing his wife says is, No, my husband, how did the advice of the Baal Shem Tov work out? And he sat down slumped on a chair and he said, My wife, you are such a good wife. I lacked so much emuna. I lacked so much faith in Hashem, faith in you, and faith in the Baal Shem Tov. You were so right. I never could have figured something like this out on my own. It was only thanks to you and the Baal Shem Tov that my life has changed. And the Graf, he had the sheepskin framed in a special, beautiful wood frame. And every year on his birthday, he would have it brought out and presented at his celebrations. And every year, he would remember the gift that he received from this Jew that no one else in the world could ever give him. And out of his gratitude, he would always send a gift to the tavern owner. And this Jew, now having a lot of money, invested the money, bought more real estate, bought farmlands, began a distillery, became more and more wealthy. And he became one of the biggest supporters of the Heilige Baal Shem Tov. Whenever somebody would come to this Jew for advice, he would say, go to the Baal Shem Tov. And a lot of his friends would say, I don't believe in Rebbe's. I don't believe in Sadiqim. I'm a God-fearing Jew. I just talk to Hashem and that's all I need to do. And this Jew would say, I was once like you and I also lacked faith. But just look at all the blessings that I have. Push that aside. Put your faith in Hashem and his Sadiqim. So I want to share one more short story with you. And this is a story that I thought that everybody knows. It was just the most basic Hasidic story. And I'm sure many of the listeners know it. But I discovered when I met my friend Daniel, came to visit me on Shabbos last week, that there are some people who don't know the story. So thanks to him, I decided to tell it on the podcast. The great Rebbe, the Rebbe Reb Zusha, who if you haven't heard the story yet, it's episode 24, Zusha spends Shabbos by the shoemaker. If you listen to the story, you'll learn why Zusha is one of the great Rebbe's but didn't leave any writings behind. And for anyone who doesn't know, you think, ah, Zusha is just some made-up Rebbe. It's not even real. The Alter Rebbe, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, he asked Reb Zusha to write a letter of recommendation for his famous book, the Tanya. And we have Reb Zusha's letter in the beginning of the Tanya, just to show you how great Reb Zusha was. And one more thing, Reb Zusha's buried right next to the Magid Mezrich, who was the successor of the Baal Shem Tov, You've got to be pretty holy to be buried next to Reb Zusha or the Magid. Reb Zusha was at the end of his life, and he could tell that he was about to leave this world. 
And the Hasidim are standing around Reb Zusha saying, Rebbe, when you get to the world to come, you're going to have such a great reward for what you accomplished in this world. But Reb Zusha said, Zusha's worried. And the Hasidim said, Zusha's worried? Zusha, you're one of the greatest tzaddikim that ever lived. And Reb Zusha says, Zusha will tell you what Zusha's worried about. Because as you know, Reb Zusha always referred to himself in the third person, because there's only one I, Anuchi, and that's HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that's Hashem. So the Hasidim said, Reb Zusha, tell us, what are you worried about? And Zusha says, when Zusha gets to the world to come, Zusha is not worried that they will ask him, were you like Avraham Avinu? Zusha said, because Zusha is not Avraham Avinu. And Zusha is not worried that in the world to come, the last Zusha, were you like Moshe Rabbeinu? Were you like Moshe, our teacher? Zusha is not worried about that. So the Hasidim said, so okay, Zusha, what are you worried about? And he said, Zusha is worried. They will ask Zusha, were you like Zusha? Were you like the Neshama that when Hashem created the world, he had you in mind? Did Zusha live up to his fullest potential in this world? That's what Zusha was scared of. And that's what we all have to learn from this story. The lesson that I get out of this is that I don't have to worry. Was I like the Lubavitcher Rebbe? Was I like Reb Shlomo Karabach? Was I like any of the great people? I don't have to be like them. I have to be Barak Holman, the soul that was put in this body and given the talents that I was given. I have to use them to my fullest during my time in this world so that when I get to the world to come, they're not going to ask me, were you like Reb Zusha? They're going to ask me, were you Abba Barak ben Kalman Dover Vebatya? Were you the soul that Hashem had in mind when He created the world? It takes a lot of self-confidence to be yourself, my friends. I've seen people look at Sadiqim and try to emulate them. I've seen people look at other people that are not them and try to be like them. It's good to learn from people, but always be yourself because you are something unique in the world that all of creation had to come about, all of it, in order for you to exist. And so I bless you, my sweetest friends, and bless me back. We take advantage of our time in this world. When we get to the world to come, we're able to say that I was who I was supposed to be. Thank you so much for listening. As always, my sweetest friends, please make sure to leave me a comment or review wherever you listen. Keep sharing this with your friends because that's how it reaches more and more people. 
And I would like to thank one of the new supporters of this podcast, the Okrent family. From wherever you're listening and whoever is listening with you, thank you so much for becoming a supporter. And if you would like to give financial support to this project, and I can tell you it goes to pay for one Shabbos meal or two a month. We have lots of guests, Baruch Hashem. I fill the table up every week. Your support is always appreciated. Every dollar, every shekel, whatever it is, any amount. And make sure also to check out my books on Amazon and my other podcast, Jewish People and Ideas, which has a new episode that just came out. I had a fascinating conversation with Yossi Klein Halevi, New York Times bestselling author and a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute here in Jerusalem. We had the first of four conversations, and this one was about American Jews and the state of Israel. And here's a little sample of our conversation. Yossi Kleinalevi is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. He is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, and Like Dreamers, which won the Jewish Book Council's Book of the Year. You can see Yossi's op-eds in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and other leading newspapers. I sat down with Yossi in his office at the Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. For the first part of a four-part series of conversations with Yossi over the next year and a half or so, in this episode we spoke about American Jews and their relationship with the State of Israel. Amongst the topics we discussed were who exactly is the American Jewish community, the rift between that community and the State of Israel, what role Israel should play in the lives of American Jews, how much influence American Jews should have on the State of Israel, and much more. This is a quote from you. There are no longer books published with the titles Jews Fight Back. If anything, the critique is that we've learned to fight too well. Jews are no longer criticized as cowards, but now we're aggressors. To have moved from the world symbol of cowardice to the world symbol of aggression in two generations is one of the greatest accomplishments in Jewish history. <laughs> it's a great quote, you see. <laughs> tell you, if it was short enough to put on a t-shirt, I'd be wearing it right now. So yeah, what is yeah. it? I thought that organized anti-Zionism had disappeared. Exactly when did what I you say said. that? In your talk recently, the one over the summer, you said the Bund and the American Council for Judaism and the anti-Zionist wing of the Reform Movement. I thought these things had disappeared. So what does it say about American Jews that anti-Zionism in an organized way is back? Jewish anti-Zionism exists as a, as a non-Satmar Nutorikarta force, really only in, in the American Jewish part of the diaspora. So the question is, what is it about the American diaspora specifically that lends itself to a, a resurgence of, of anti-Zionism? I think partly it's the fact that American Jews really feel at home. And in other parts of the diaspora, Jews are nervous, permanently nervous. And they know that Israel is, is their get out of jail free card. Yeah. So. Uh, American Jews really internalize the idea that Israel is a refuge for other Jews. And I think that that's true. Mm. I think it's true even now, even with, with an undeniable change in the rise of anti-Semitism. American Jews are still, are really the first diaspora that's fully at home. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a certain laziness that American Jewish anti-Zionists apply to Israel because it's from a place of uh, of comfort and security. And so when I hear certain people 
speak about certain American Jewish anti-Zionists, speak about, well, you know, you don't need a major- Jewish majority anymore. Uh, you can um, you can have a binational state, or even if it comes to it, live under majority Palestinian rules. You know, you'll have right of return for Palestinians, and there'll be Palestinian majority here. What I hear is, first of all, profound laziness. I don't know if if, if that goes together, but there is. It seems to me this is an example of that. And more than that, a I'm okay, Jack, as they used to say in in the World War II generation in America. I'm okay, Jack. And uh, you'll be okay to, you know, you'll manage. And that sense of 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 recklessness with Jewish lives, that's that's stunning to me. What do you think would ha- what do you think will happen here if if we don't have an army, if we don't have a a Jewish majority, if we don't have a government? What's going to happen here? And so there's something in the American Jewish experience that the distance from Jews with problems, the geographical distance, that can create a kind of a self-referential disregard for the real world. That was Yossi Klein-Alevi. If you'd like to hear the full conversation, you can do a search for Jewish people and ideas, or just go to my website, jewishpeopleideas.com, and you'll see the episode there. You'll also see the previous episodes, which are all fascinating conversations. So thank you again for listening, and I look forward to our next story together next week. In the meantime, my sweetest friends, sei gesund.